in Bunyan's classic allegory of the Christian life entitled The Pilgrim's Progress, roughly halfway through Christian's journey to the celestial city, Christian and his fellow pilgrim hopeful found that the way on which they had been traveling became very difficult such that they began to wish for a better and easier way. About that time, they looked to the left and they saw bypass meadow, which seemed a much easier route than the one that they were presently on, and besides, it seemed to head in the same general direction, so what could be the harm? So Christian Hopeful left the king's highway, which they had been instructed to take and sternly warned not to forsake, and they ventured over the gate and began to cut across bypass meadow, finding that path a much easier and far more pleasant walk than the difficult and arduous way that they had been traveling. But when night fell, the pilgrims found themselves lost, and the meadow they found to be filled with unseen pits into which other travelers fell and never returned. Moreover, a fierce storm blew up, and it began to rain and thunder and lightning all around, and a flash flood cut off their retreat from behind. And so, lost and Soaking and exhausted, they sat down under a little shelter, and it was not long before they fell asleep. Now what Christian and Hopeful did not know was that they had wandered onto the grounds of Doubting Castle, which was ruled by the giant Despair. The giant, walking in his fields the next morning, found the two pilgrims fast asleep, and so he captured them, and he threw them into the dungeon of Doubting Castle. And for four days, from Wednesday morning through Saturday night, Christian and Hopeful sat imprisoned in that dark and dank and rotting dungeon with no bread, no water, no light, and no hope. On Thursday morning, the giant came down into the dungeon and he beat them severely. On Friday morning, he returned and he attempted to persuade them that they ought to kill themselves. When that failed, he intended to kill them himself, but... Bunyan says he was mysteriously and miraculously restrained. That night, Christian seriously contemplated ending his own life, but Hopeful exhorted him not to give in to his despair, reminding him of all of the trials and tribulations through which he had already come. Saturday morning, the giant came to them as before, and he took them out into the castle yard where he showed them the bones of other pilgrims which he had captured and which he had torn to pieces, telling Christian and Hopeful that he intended to do the same to them within ten days' time. He then beat them back into the dungeon. That night, Saturday night, about midnight, Christian and Hopeful began to pray, and they continued in prayer through the night. And just before dawn, Christian was struck with a sudden realization and he burst out, What a fool am I thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I I have in my bosom a key called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Christian then produced from his pocket the key which he never before knew that he had. And he tried it on the dungeon door, and the bolt gave back, and the door flew open with ease. And so Christian and Hopeful ran up the stairs, out of the dungeon, to the door that led into the castle yard. And Christian's key opened that lock as well. 
And so the pilgrims ran out into the yard and out to the great iron gate. And though that bolt turned with great difficulty, the key worked there also. Christian and hopeful thus escaped Doubting Castle and ran all the way back to the King's Highway from which they never departed again. Now, as in all of his allegories, this passage in Pilgrim's Progress is dense with meaning. There are all manner of spiritual lessons to be learned, like the danger of deviating from the way in search of an easier path, or the difficulty of returning to the way once you have left it. Bunyan comments, Then I thought that it was easier going out of the way when we are in than going in when we are out. But the main lesson Bunyan wants to teach us in this passage is that there is a key which unlocks every door in Doubting Castle. There is a way of escape from the clutches of the giant despair, and the true pilgrim has it in his breast pocket all the time. The key is the promise of the gospel. This passage of Pilgrim's Progress is about assurance, which can be lost through sin, through the bypaths that we take on our Christian pilgrimage. Bunyan, as we know, was no stranger to bouts of despair and doubt. He spent many a year early on in his own pilgrimage chained in the jungle or the dungeon rather of Doubting Castle, a captive of the giant despair. And he, he knew from experience that the only way of escape was through the promise of the gospel, the key called promise. In his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, Bunyan tells of a time when he was walking through a field, not unlike, unlike Bypass Meadow, and he was struggling with doubts over the state of his soul when words came to him which said, Thy righteousness is in heaven. And Bunyan wrote, That I thought that I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So that wherever I was and whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, He lacks my righteousness, for that was just before Him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall from off my legs. Indeed, I was loosed from my afflictions and my irons. My temptations also fled away. Now I also went home rejoicing for the grace and the love of God. What key was it that Bunyan found in his pocket that day? Thy righteousness is in heaven. What he found was the doctrine of justification by faith in the imputation of Christ's righteousness. That is the key which will unlock any door in Doubting Castle. That is the key that will set you free from your captivity to the giant despair. Now, I said last week that my aim over these four weeks in Romans 3, 21 to 31 was that you would know how a sinner is made right with God, and furthermore, that you would know that you yourself are right, are justified before God. In other words, my aim in the month of February in Romans 3, 21 to 31 is not merely intellectual, it is experiential. I want you to know how a sinner is saved, and I want you to feel saved. 
The key to doubting Castle is in this passage. Free for the taking. And so my encouragement to you this morning is to take it up, place it inside your breast pocket right next to your heart, because there will come a day when you're going to need it. For some of you, that day is today. You find yourself today a prisoner of the giant despair. The chains of doubt and fear are fast bound around your arms and your legs and have been for some time. You fear coming in this morning for the state of your soul. You find it difficult to sing with any sort of confidence and any sort of assurance and any sort of joy the kind of gospel songs that we sang this morning. You just don't know. You're not confident that they apply to you. You fear that you may not truly be saved. I know what that's like. I've been where you are, and I encourage you this morning to pay special attention to this message because I firmly believe that the key to your assurance and your freedom and your peace is in Romans chapter 3, 22, 23, and 24. That's where I found my key, and it set me free, and it will set you free as well. So grasp hold of it, take it, and with it open the doors of your dungeon and go free. The key called promise is the doctrine of justification by faith in the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And that is our focus this morning in verses 23 and 24. Today I intend to expound upon five aspects of justification. Five aspects of this doctrine of justification by faith alone in an imputation of Christ's righteousness. Number one, I want you to note the need of justification. Paul establishes this universal need in verse 23 by first establishing the universal sinfulness of men. Start in verse 22 with that last phrase. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 is a famous verse, and rightly so. It's one of the first verses that we learned as children. It's one of the first verses we teach to our kids in Awana. It's one of the first verses that we go to when we're evangelizing and walking with people down the so-called Roman road. But verse 23 has a context. It occurs between verse 22 and 24, and it's intimately linked to both. In verse 22, you remember from last week that Paul stated that the righteousness of God, which he said in verse 21, is manifested now apart from the law, yet was testified to by the law and the prophets, is now available through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Okay, that was the focus of last week's message, verses 21 and 22, in which we learned that this righteousness of God that has now been manifested is historical, it was achieved in the death of Jesus Christ. It is legal. It fulfills the law and thereby merits eternal life. It is biblical. It was the hope of all of the Old Testament saints. And it is universal. It is available to all sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. Now I want you to notice the four which connects verse 23 to verse 22. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul's telling us something here. 
he is establishing that this justifying righteousness of which he has spoken in verse 21 and 22 is available to anyone regardless of race, Jew or Gentile, gender, male or female, status, slave or free, rich or poor, or degree of sin, the religious and the moral, the pagan and the immoral. Why? Why this universal availability of the justifying righteousness of God? Because, says Paul, no matter who we are, no matter where we've come from, no matter what we've done, all of us have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us. Therefore, no one is more deserving or less deserving of this righteousness than anyone else. Deservedness, as we will come to find out, has nothing to do with it. To fall short of God's glory likely means that we've fallen short of the glory with which or in which God has created us, the glory that he intends for us to reflect. We were created to shine like the stars of the heaven in righteousness and glory, but instead we find ourselves dark and defiled and hideously disfigured replicas of the image of God. Every one of us, without exception, have fallen short of God's glory. Now, it is true that there are degrees of sin when you compare two sins against one another. Some sins, says the Baptist Catechism, in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are worse than others. But when a sin, any sin, is compared with the infinite purity of God, all sins become ugly, grotesque, and damnable offenses in his sight. The 19th century evangelical Anglican bishop Hanley Moole wrote to his, uh, his cultured English readers, right? These are people who uh, stick their pinkies up when they drink their tea. And he said to them something that they didn't hear in other Anglican pulpits of the day. He said, the harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of God's glory. And he would have expected a very polite British amen. But then he said, but so are you. They may stand at the bottom of a mine and you on the crest of an alp, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they. This is the place where we need to begin when seeking to understand the doctrine of justification. The need for justification is universal because the sinfulness of man is universal. You will not attain to the glory of heaven by trying in your own strength and in your own power to touch the stars. Trying to achieve righteousness and glory through the works of the law, is the ultimate exercise in futility. Righteousness, justification must be given to you. And that's good news. Okay, This is one ridge on that key called promise that unlocks the door of doubt and despair. Because if all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, if all are, under, are undeserving of justification and everlasting life, then your sins 
cannot disqualify you from God's justifying grace. If you didn't deserve his justification to begin with, you haven't lost that deservedness through some sin you've committed now. You cannot disqualify yourself if you were never qualified to begin with. So if you are locked this morning in the dungeon of Doubting Castle thinking that you have sinned beyond the reach of God's grace, like Christian and Hopeful thinking that since they had turned away from, from the way and gone down Bypath Meadow that now they were abandoned to die and to perish in this dark and dismal dungeon, if that's you this morning, if you think that you've disqualified yourself by turning aside from the King's Highway for Bypath Meadow, then remember this truth. Qualification has nothing to do with justification. Justification is by God's free and sovereign grace alone. Which brings us to the second aspect of justification, its source. So if justification, if the source of our justification is not to be found in our own merit, in our own deservedness, in our own works, then where is it to be found? Look at verse 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. The source of justification is the free, unmerited, unconstrained, sovereign grace of God. Simply put, God justifies sinners not because He has to, but because he wants to. There is nothing in us, no goodness, no loveliness, no merit, no qualification, nothing which would constrain or compel God to remit our sins and revoke our punishment. Sometimes I get the idea that we think we're like those adorable little puppies in the adoption videos that are all climbing over one another, all fur and wrinkles trying to get to you, and you, you walk by and you just, you just can't help but pick them up and take them home. That's not us. We're not adorable puppies. We're wretched sinners. Nothing in us compelled God to love us or to save us. There are no extenuating circumstances in our case which would give him pause. Therefore, the only source of this justifying righteousness must lie within God himself. His own free, unconstrained graciousness, which desires to save a people from their sins and to rescue them from his just wrath and to share with them his own infinite glory and ceaseless joy. And Paul, just in case we miss it, he, he emphasizes this point by a kind of redundancy. He says we are justified by His grace as a gift. I actually prefer the translation freely by His grace. Now this is a redundancy because grace is by its very definition free. It's uncompelled, unconstrained goodness directed towards someone who is utterly undeserving. Grace allows for no thought of merit Romans 11.6 says, For if it is by grace, then it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. So there's really no reason for Paul to attach the word freely or as a gift to the concept of grace except 
to emphasize the graciousness of the grace of God. The graciousness in God's bestowing freedom. God's absolute freedom in bestowing grace upon sinners. It's as if Paul takes grace, which is itself infinite, and then squares it. It's exponential grace. So this is a second ridge in the key of promise. And it flows naturally out of the first. If we are all utterly undeserving of God's glory, then the justifying righteousness which God gives in order to bring sinners to glory must be entirely of grace. Now again, this undergirds our assurance by removing the source of justification from ourselves and placing it squarely, solely within God. God chose freely, unconstrained and uncompelled by any external factor to extend his justifying righteousness to you. Therefore, there is nothing you could ever do to alter his gracious election of you. If the source of the fountain of justifying grace is found in God himself, then your sins cannot defile that fountain because you are downstream from that gracious fountain. Your sins do not somehow run against the current upstream and defile the gracious heart of God such that he now looks upon you with disfavor instead of favor. The grace of God is flowing down in an irresistible current and it's going to sweep all of your sins out to sea. There is such freedom and joy in this discovery. If you will open your eyes and see it, it's not in you. It's in Him. Now, did you come here to think this morning? I hope so. Because now we're ready to define justification. And we're going to do so with a little lesson in historical theology. After the debate over the principle of sola scriptura, which says that Scripture alone is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice, the definition, the meaning of justification was the central point of contention in the Reformation. Roman Catholic dogma taught and still teaches today that justification essentially means to make righteous. Now, this doctrine arose from a faulty translation of the Greek word translated justification, the Greek word dikaiao. The Latin translates this term Justificare, which means to make righteous. So way back in Jerome's day, in the 5th century, he mistranslated the Greek word for justify, and he translated it with a word that means to make righteous. And ever since then, the Roman Catholic Church has been erecting their doctrine of justification upon a false translation. They've been developing a doctrine of justification that sought to address the question of how an unrighteous sinner may be made righteous. And so, in Roman Catholicism, justification occurs after sanctification. In other words, in order for an unrighteous sinner 
to be accepted before God, he must actually become acceptable. He must be made righteous. And so in Catholic theology, this happens through the sacraments of the church. It begins in the sacrament of baptism. In baptism, justifying grace is infused into the soul of the one who is baptized, whether an adult or an infant, that justifying grace is infused into their soul, thus eradicating the stain of original sin. Now, this actually makes the person righteous and brings them into a state of justification or acceptance before God. The only problem is that infusion of grace leaks somehow. It must be maintained. Because the state of justification can be diminished through venial sins, those are small sins, or lost altogether through mortal sins, those are the biggies. In fact, that's where the term mortal sin came from. It refers to sins which are so serious that they kill the justifying grace which was infused into the sinner in baptism. If that happens, the sinner must restore his justifying grace through the sacrament of penance in which he goes to the priest, confesses his sins, who absol- the priest absolves him of his sin and prescribes for him certain works of satisfaction. You've got to give this much uh, to the church, this much to charity. You need to say these many our fathers and these many Hail Marys. These works of satisfaction then produce merit which then make it fitting for God to restore him to a state of justification and grace. If this state of justification, begun through the infusion of justifying grace and baptism, if it is maintained through the sacraments of penance and the Eucharist and all the rest, such that the person dies in a state of grace, a state of justification, then they'll be saved and they'll receive eternal life. If, however... The person dies in a state of mortal sin, he goes to hell. If he dies in a state of venial sin, where he hasn't lost all of his grace, he still has some, but he doesn't have enough, then he goes to purgatory, where his impurities will be purged out of his soul by fire until he is once again actually inherently righteous. And so in the Roman Catholic view, justification is a state of righteousness infused into the sinner in baptism and maintained through a careful adherence of the sacraments. Beloved, that's why there was a Reformation. It was against that understanding of justification that the Reformers protested. The Reformers went back to the original Greek text and they discovered that's not what the word means. Dikaio does not mean to make righteous. It means to declare righteous. It's a legal term, and it refers to a once-for-all verdict, not an ongoing process. It means to acquit, to declare not guilty. This is its meaning all the way throughout Scripture. For instance, in Deuteronomy 25, 1, The law says, if there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting, specifically justifying, 
the innocent and condemning the guilty, and then it goes on. Well, think about that. A judge does not make a person guilty or innocent. He declares them to be guilty or not guilty. In Luke 7.29, Luke records the crowd's reaction to Jesus' teaching. He said, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. Literally, they justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Well, clearly the people did not make God righteous when they justified God, did they? One does not make God righteous. They declared him to be righteous on the basis of what he had done. Finally, in Romans 2.13, Paul uses the same word, though in a different context. He says, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Think about that. On the day of judgment, nobody is going to be made righteous. They will either be declared righteous or not. Furthermore, we understand that justification doesn't mean to make righteous if we compare it with its opposite, which is the word condemnation. Nobody imagines that the word to condemn means to make guilty. We understand that it means to declare guilty. And so in the same way that to condemn means to declare guilty and therefore worthy of punishment, to justify means to declare righteous and thereby worthy of eternal life. But how could a righteous God declare an unrighteous sinner to be righteous when in fact he is not? Wouldn't that be false? Wouldn't that be a false verdict? That was what Rome charged the reformers with teaching. And they would have been right had it not been for the principle of imputation. You see, when the reformers read the Bible, particularly this passage in Romans 3, they saw that justification depends upon a gifting of righteousness, a transfer a deeding over, if you will, of the righteousness of God through faith to the believing sinner such that God pronounces the believing sinner's verdict on the basis of the perfect righteousness of Christ and not his own righteousness. Thus, in justification, God looks at the sinner now possessing the perfect righteousness of Christ by faith, and justly declares him not guilty. Thus, Protestants and Catholics were and remain miles apart on the answer to the question of how a sinner may stand in the judgment of God. They have a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. The Catholic answer to that question is that a sinner is made right with God by the infusion of righteousness through baptism, and must be maintained through the fastidious observance of the sacraments. The Protestant, and I would add biblical answer, 
is that a sinner is declared right with God by the imputation of righteousness through faith once for all. What's the practical difference between this? I mean, is this just like a historical event that only nerds find interesting? Well, nerds do find it interesting. But it has great practical application. And that practical application centers upon the issue of your assurance of salvation. There can be explicitly, this was affirmed in the councils of Trent, which were the Catholic response to the Reformation, there is no assurance of salvation in the Catholic doctrine of justification. Why? How could you ever know whether you had adequately maintained your state of justifying grace? In Catholicism, you enter into the judgment cloudy and confused as to how it's going to go for you, always being told that it's probably not going to go well. What if there was some sin that you left unconfessed? What if there was some work of penance that you didn't do just right, some work of satisfaction to which you failed to meet the standard? But in the Protestant biblical doctrine of justification, there is great assurance How can you know if you are justified? Well, are you resting in Christ by faith? Is Christ's righteousness your only plea in the judgment of God? Then you are right with God. R.C. Sproul comments, much is at stake here. One of the most significant theological issues we can ever discuss is on the table. It is the question of what we must do to be saved. If I thought that I had to arrive at a state, no matter how much grace the church has for me, of perfect righteousness without any imperfections in order to reach heaven, I would completely despair of ever having salvation. If my church taught this concept of justification, that would be horrible news, not good news. Thankfully, the Reformation affirmed the biblical gospel, the truth that the moment a person possesses saving faith, He is transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. His sins are taken away, and he is declared just on the basis of the righteousness of Christ and is adopted into the family of God. There is no need for inherent righteousness. There is no need for purgatory. There is no need for a second plank of justification. So when you find yourself chained in the dungeon of Doubting Castle, you'd better have the Protestant doctrine of justification in the pocket of your chest. You better have this key of promise in your breast pocket because it's the only one that'll unlock the door and release your chains. Now, we've essentially covered the topic of justification from verse 24. We've shown that it provides the only solid foundation for our assurance, but there remain two more aspects that I want to highlight briefly for the sake of clarity. The fourth aspect is its grounds. In other words, on what basis does God justify us? On what basis can he declare unrighteous people who deserve his everlasting wrath to be righteous and deserving of everlasting life? Well, look again at verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption of that is in Christ Jesus. There's the grounds. While justification is a legal term that comes from the law courts, redemption is a commercial term and it comes from the marketplace. 
It originally referred to the release of prisoners of war or the release of slaves upon the payment of a price. That price was called a ransom payment. Now, the emphasis of this word is on the payment that is made in order to secure the release. And what Paul obviously has in mind, based upon where he's going in the next verse, is that the death of Christ is that ransom payment which secured the redemption of those whom God justifies. Because he immediately goes in, in verses 25 and 26, and speaks of Christ's death as a propitiation. That's a satisfaction of God's judicial wrath. That's going to be our focus next week. We're going to We're going to slow down and cover verses 25 and 26. For today, just focus upon verse 24 and the connection between justification and redemption. Justification is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is the grounds on which God is able to justly justify sinners is because Christ's death has paid or satisfied the debt which we owed to God for our sin. Jesus did not break into the prison in the dead of night and and whisk us away to freedom under the cover of darkness. That's not the way Jesus justified us. He didn't steal us away. Instead, Jesus walked right up to God, the righteous judge, in the light of day and in the sight of everyone paid the full penalty for our sin through his death on the cross, the entire debt which was required to secure our release. And on that basis, God sets us free. So this adds a new and important dimension to our understanding of justification. Now I mentioned earlier that Protestants believe that that the Bible teaches that we are justified through the imputation of righteousness rather than the infusion of of righteousness. That's true, but it goes further. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, and therefore we receive a share in his reward of eternal life and blessing. That's one imputation, but there's another. Our unrighteousness was imputed to Christ, and he bore the penalty of our sin, which was death and the wrath of God. The price of our sin had to be paid or we could not be justified. So we are justified on the grounds of a double imputation. Our unrighteousness was imputed to Christ and he suffered in full the just penalty of our sin. And Christ's perfect Obedience, his law-keeping righteousness is imputed to us by faith and we receive the reward of eternal life which he earned. Finally, we need to clarify one final issue, the subject of justification, and that is its means. So how do we actually enter into this justification? Well, we saw that the Roman Catholic answer is through baptism. And then when justifying righteousness is lost, it is restored through works of penance and acts of satisfaction. But what is Paul's answer as to how a sinner receives 
Christ's justifying righteousness. Look at verse 21. I'm going to highlight some important phrases. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, note this, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, note this, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who is baptized, the one who performs works of penance, makes confession to the priest, does his acts of satisfaction, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The entirety of Romans chapter 4 is going to establish this truth. The sole means of justification is faith in Jesus Christ. It's not that Catholics deny the necessity of faith. They believe that faith is essential to justification. They just deny that it is sufficient for justification. But that's exactly why Romans 4 exists. Paul wrote Romans 4 to prove that not only is faith necessary, faith is sufficient to put you right with God because of what Christ has done. Look at Romans 4 and verse 4. Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Look, Paul sets works and faith in the strictest opposition to one another such that they cannot be joined or else we lose justification altogether. So if you would be justified in the sight of God, if you would be counted righteous in Christ, you must not work for God's acceptance. Rather, you must believe, receive, rest in, rely upon the blood that Christ shed for your redemption and the righteousness which Christ gives you in imputation. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is the key of promise that unlocks every door in Doubting Castle. So take it this morning, put it into your breast pocket, right next to your heart, and when you find yourself chained in the dungeon, fearing that you haven't done enough, you haven't felt enough, you haven't repented enough, you haven't believed enough for God to save you, you need to take out this key and slide it into the lock. You need to remind yourself that justification is by grace alone. My goodness or lack thereof played no role in God's decision to justify me. God justifies the ungodly simply because he is gracious. 
Therefore, on my better days, God is no more willing to save me. And on my worst days, he is no less willing to save me. The source of my justification is not me at all. It is the free and sovereign and unconstrained grace of God, which is unchanging. Justification is by faith alone. My works, my striving, my effort plays absolutely no role in whether or not I am right before God. Therefore, if I have sinned terribly this weekend, I am no less justified. And if I was especially good this weekend, I am no more justified. If I this morning am resting in and relying upon the blood of Jesus Christ and the righteousness of Christ alone, then my sins are forgiven no matter what happened this weekend, and I am clothed in the perfect spotless righteousness of Christ. And finally, justification is in Christ alone. The grounds of my justification are the obedient life and the redeeming death of Jesus Christ which stands forever perfect and complete. All of my sins are paid for, all of my debt is satisfied, and all of the righteousness of Christ belongs to me. Therefore, I am free. Do you have this key, this key of promise, this this key of the doctrine of justification by faith in the imputation of Christ's righteousness? Check your breast pocket. Check to see if it's there. Maybe the Lord has put it there while you've been listening. You need not languish any longer in the dungeon of Doubting Castle, the slave and prisoner of the giant despair. Reach in, take out the key, open the lock, and walk out into the freedom and joy of the children of God.